0: Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today we're having a Fellows Forum interview, and I'm joined by Dr. Matt Hadfield. Thanks so much for coming on today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: To start off, I'd like to share a little bit about yourself and what you do in your work.
1: Yeah, so I am a third-year hematology oncology fellow at at Brown University in the Ligaretta Cancer Center in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, I predominantly do research in early phase clinical trials. So these are clinical trials that are often first in human studies with an emphasis on Novel immunotherapy um, medications, as well as immunotherapy combinations to overcome resistance, um, and focus predominantly on solid tumors. And you know, throughout my fellowship and even residency, I've developed a, a really uh, profound interest in immunotherapy toxicities, which I think is something that is very relevant to not only practicing oncologists and hematologists, but uh, all all practitioners of medicine. So the, those are kind of my big areas of uh, research and interest.
0: Awesome. So to delve into your research a little bit, what exactly is immunotherapy and how does it differ from chemotherapy or targeted therapies?
1: Yeah. um, So immunotherapy has really changed the landscape of how we treat cancer. Um, You know, the concept that we could harness the body's immune system against cancer really goes back, you know, all the way to the the turn of the 20th century um, with something called Cooley toxins. So um, physicians back then would notice that um, patients who had co-infections with sarcoma would actually do better in terms of um, regression of their tumors which led to this hypothesis that the immune system played some type of role in in controlling uh, cancer growth and proliferation and in the 80s and the 90s we used to use um, something called interferon pretty frequently which essentially stimulates innate immune responses and um, was horrible at it really led to lots of systemic toxicities. People felt like they had the flu all the time. It was really, uh, uh, you know, not easy to tolerate. And, and, you know, in addition to not being easy to tolerate, it also had very poor responses in terms of treating uh, cancer, particularly melanoma. Um, and then, you know, Jim Allison, who won the Nobel prize back in uh, 2018, uh, he spent most of his career working on something called CTLA-4, which is a, an immune checkpoint. So. Basically, the immune system, you know, is, is wonderful when it works the way it's supposed to, but we have these breaks built in place called checkpoints that stops the immune system from becoming, you know, too overactivated, too too proliferative, and, and essentially stops autoimmunity. And what Jim Allison, is, as well as his collaborators in Japan, uh, discovered was that these immune checkpoints could be blocked and, and then allow the immune system to then turn T cells against cancer. and And... And, and treated uh, as a treatment modality. Um, the first approved uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor was ipilimumab in 2011 for metastatic melanoma. And just to give a little context uh, to how bleak melanoma was prior to that, um, we used to give, as I mentioned, interpiron and the and, and the overall survival back then for patients was less than a year. Um, with ipilimumab alone, uh, the overall survival increased to uh, just, just shy of three years. And then with the combination of two immune checkpoint inhibitors, nivolumab and ipilimumab, which nivolumab targets another uh, immune checkpoint called PD-1, um, the overall survival is now o- over five years, uh, which is remarkable considering uh, where we came. So I- immune checkpoint inhibitors turn the body's immune system against the cancer, whereas chemotherapy is, is really drugs that you know just indiscriminately kill rapidly dividing cells. And then targeted therapy, which is sort of the, the third box that we kind of think about in terms of cancer treatments, is are therapies that target specific proteins or genomic alterations that are driving the cancer. So immunotherapy has now had dozens of FDA indications across multiple solid tumors and hematological malignancies and has become really an absolute uh you know remarkable uh advancement in the field of, of oncology and provided durable benefits to to multitudes of patients.
0: Awesome! It's really remarkable to you know hear about those results, and um, thanks so much for you know comprehensive overview of them. So I know that a lot of your research as well focuses on the management of immunotherapy-related adverse events. Uh, so what exactly are these, and how do they differ from known toxicity from chemotherapy?
1: Yeah, I think that you know that's that's a, a really important question right now as we start to give more immunotherapy across the board to, to lots of different types of cancer. When we think about chemotherapy it really is drugs that are designed to kill rapidly dividing cells and has a very predictable pattern of toxicities. Uh, For instance, when you give chemotherapy, you can expect things like nausea, vomiting, hair loss, you know, GI side effects, uh, cytopenias, like anemia, thrombocytopenia, things like that, that all are very um, predictable when you when you think about giving a drug that, you know, attacks rapidly dividing cells. Obviously, every chemotherapy has its own side effect profile, but immunotherapy really is a completely different box altogether. So when you give an immune checkpoint inhibitor, what you're doing is you're taking the, the brakes, so to speak, off the immune system. And when you when you do that, you can induce an autoimmune reaction uh, in uh, a patient. So in patients who have received dual checkpoint inhibitors, the uh, incidence of grade three, grade four immune side effects is, is over 50%, so it's a significant amount of patients develop these types of toxicities. Most commonly, you could have inflammation from you know, T-cell activation in, in your lungs, uh, that would be considered pneumonitis, uh, in your colon, colitis, uh, dermatological reactions, those are the most common, but it really is um, remarkable that immunotherapy can cause autoimmune um, um, adverse events in, in any organ system of your body. And, you know, there's rare cases of, of things like autoimmune thrombocytopenia, autoimmune uveitis, uh, all sorts of strange side effects. So it, it really is important, not only for oncologists who manage these, these patients uh, to be very um, aware that these toxicities exist um, and have to have a high clinical suspicion for diagnosing them, but also the timing of these types of toxicities is incredibly variable. So, whereas when you give chemotherapy, you know, you can expect that someone's going to have side effects within you know, seven to fourteen days, and then they'll slowly get better. That's why we design uh, chemotherapeutic regimens and cycles. Immunotherapy can cause adverse events several months after they last received the drug. So, you know, it's it's a really important thing for not only oncologists to keep in mind, but you know, general practice physicians, emergency room physicians, subspecialists. Everyone has to have a high clinical suspicion because the the pattern and uh, incidence of these types of toxicities is incredibly
0: variable. Mm-hmm. So what is the current um, understanding and approach toward how immune-related adverse events are diagnosed and managed, and how do you personally go about approaching this in your practice?
1: Um, So the way we diagnose immunotherapy uh, toxicities is uh, it's a clinical diagnosis. So at the current time, we don't have any uh, biomarkers to predict or biomarkers either to predict or to diagnose immunotherapy-related adverse events or toxicities. It's a incredibly important uh, void in the field of, of oncology right now. Is that we we don't know who's going to develop these toxicities. Uh, there's been some very interesting research done at uh, the Harvard Cancer Center and Mass General recently that showed that certain HLA subtypes can predispose to toxicities. Um, but even in that the those studies, it wasn't clear. Um, you know, people who had this predisp- predisposition, not all of them developed the toxicities. So it, there's still a lot of room to to research this further and figure it out. Um, So, you know, really, the way we diagnose immunotherapy toxicities is is clinical. Um, For instance, pneumonitis, if someone who's been treated with immunotherapy presents to the emergency department or the outpatient clinic and are having shortness of breath, you know, you go through a typical differential diagnosis for for shortness of breath in a a cancer patient, you know, things like infectious uh, etiology, such as pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, and really immunotherapy toxicity becomes something of a diagnosis of exclusion, um, it can be very challenging and it, it can be, you know, very much overlap with, with things like pneumonia. Imaging, for instance, is, is very nonspecific pneumonitis. So sometimes pneumonitis can look like consolidation, like a bacterial pneumonia, and sometimes it can look like patchy infiltrates. Um, sometimes the radiographic um, findings can be pretty subtle, uh, but have a patient has significant hypoxia. So this is something that we, any new symptom, any new physical exam finding, any change in vital signs, we we always have to sort of think uh, in the differential diagnosis, could this be related to immunotherapy? Um, In terms of management, that's a a really um, important aspect of, of this as well, because if you think about immunotherapy toxicities, the whole concept is that we're taking the immune system and we're turning it against the cancer. Um, when we develop these types of immunotherapy-related adverse events, then we have to use immunosuppressive medications to then, you know, stop the patient from having symptoms and and reduce morbidity and mortality. But by doing that, we're, you know, reducing the efficacy of the intended treatment. So this was actually shown in melanoma. Again, um, the MGH group published uh, results uh, about a year ago that showed that, Patients treated with high dose steroids for immunotherapy related adverse events did have worse overall survival, which is intuitive when we think about the fact that we're activating the immune system and then dampening it with an immunosuppressive medication. So, um, you know, typically once we have a high clinical suspicion for, uh, an immunotherapy related adverse event, such as pneumonitis, we, we start high dose steroids, um, and then taper those based on clinical response, um. And, th- and that's true for most uh, adverse events for endocrinopathies. Uh, so if someone was to have autoimmune thyroiditis or uh, adrenal insufficiency, we do not treat with steroids. We, we just treat with um, uh, hormone replacement therapy because the role of steroids is, is not helpful. You know, you're not going to save those organs in that situation. Same thing with type 1 diabetes. It results from immune check inhibitors. You, you just treat as any other type 1 diabetes. You wouldn't treat that with steroids. Um, so it can be very nuanced in terms of the management. Um, one thing that's really important, and and hopefully we'll see more of in the future, are steroid sparing treatments. So um, things like IL six inhibitors or TNF alpha inhibitors, or um, IVIG, things of that nature that could either augment the uh, treatment with steroids or could potentially. Um, replace steroids altogether, because we know that giving high-dose steroids can reduce the efficacy of treatment. We know that, um, you know, the the survival is worse, the efficacy is worse of treatment. So it's a rapidly evolving field. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have tons of biomarkers at this point. Uh, we don't have, um, you know, good predictors. Uh, so it's, it's it's a challenging uh, area and field to manage. Yep.
0: Oh, thanks so much. That was a really you know, comprehensive overview again of all the different nuances and considerations that go into this. With all these um, complexities and everything, what do you think the future of IRAEs will look like and how these will be diagnosed and managed as time goes on?
1: I think there's, there's several things that hopefully will evolve over the next five to ten years. I think one of the big things will be uh, predictive biomarkers. So there's been a lot of research in, into this over the last you know, ten years, um, as I mentioned, HLA subtyping. So, you know, could you find uh, subsets of patients that are at least higher risk or lower risk, so that you can stratify? Um, and this is going to become more pertinent as you know we progress with these treatments, because if you think about patients who are treated in the metastatic setting, you have, you have limited options, and unfortunately, they're a terminal uh, diagnosis for their cancer. So. Toxicity is something that you have to weigh with the risks and benefits because these therapies trickle down more into the neoadjuvant setting. So as we give them to patients who are going to potentially have curative intent treatments, either with surgery or radiation, and you think that someone could develop a grade three or grade four adverse event that could take away their potential, you know, life-saving, life-prolonging therapy, uh, we really need better biomarkers to predict who's going to respond, uh, or not, not only respond, but also develop immunotherapy toxicities. I think, you know, there's been a few interesting studies looking at cytokine profiling. So both single cytokines like IL-6, you know, whether or not baseline elevations in IL-6 predict for immunotherapy toxicities, or, you know, multiple cytokines together, you know, predicting whether or not, you know, elevations with a, a composite score is something that could predict whether or not someone's gonna have a toxicity. So far, those haven't really panned out. So I'm hopeful that we will be better at figuring out A, who's going to develop these toxicities based on some type of predefined risk stratification score and B, you know, use that information to then you know stratify is the risk too high for them to get an immune checkpoint inhibitor? Should they receive just one instead of two? Um, or should they really be in such a high risk of toxicity that they shouldn't get an immune checkpoint inhibitor at all? So th- those are some of the, the big things in terms of you know, determining who's going to and who's not going to get uh, immune-related adverse events. I think in terms of treatment, um, unfortunately, we're very heavily reliant on high-dose steroids. So, you know, there's there's a, a, a real risk for patients who develop some type of immune toxicity, like pneumonitis, for instance, to be on steroids for prolonged uh, periods of time, many weeks and months, before they can be weaned off altogether. I think... Um, you know that's, that's that's a whole lot of issues in itself you know people being on high dose steroids they can't be tapered off you know there's there's metabolic side effects being on high dose steroids there's um there's the reduced efficacy that i mentioned from having high dose steroids treat immune checkpoint inhibitors um there's just a lot of issues with that so hopefully in the future we will uncouple ourselves from being completely reliant on high dose steroids and we'll be able to you know use things like IL-6, IL-12, TNF alpha um, to treat but also I think there's potential that in the future we will combine those up front so when someone starts an immune checkpoint inhibitor they will get something like a TNF alpha or an IL-6 inhibitor at the same time that will hopefully mitigate and prophylact against developing toxicity and hopefully we at that point would have um, predictive biomarkers or or something that could help uh, tell who's going to be at higher risk and could benefit from that type of treatment so there's there's a lot to figure out unfortunately but uh it's becoming more and more pertinent every day um you know more and more FDA indications have uh, led to many more patients than five years ago being treated with these types of therapies Uh, there's lots of patients that um, are going to be seen in the emergency department primary care physician offices things like that um, who are going to um, be you know Developing or for showing signs of these types of these adverse events, and, and the clinical suspicion will have to be very high for a lot of different practitioners. Um, and there's multiple new checkpoints. So, lag three is now approved in um, in melanoma, and, and TIGITs being studied in lung cancer. So, there's there's going to be a, a lot, lot more of this in the future.
0: Awesome! That'll definitely be exciting to see all the all the ways that the field progresses in the next few years, even. Uh, to wrap up any parting words like to share about immunotherapy or IRAs to kind of, you know, raise awareness about it.
1: I think that the big thing that I would just hope uh, people take away is that immunotherapy related adverse events should always be on the differential diagnosis for for any cancer patient who's treated with these therapies. And it really does go beyond the scope of just oncologists. So there's a really interesting study that's a little dated now, but it was done at MGH back in um, MGH has done a lot of work in this area. So they get, they get cited an awful lot, but um, there was a study that basically showed uh they polled um different oncologists at their center as well as subspecialists uh their comfortability would uh, remain with managing immunotherapy adverse events and basically the, the gist of the study was that a significant amount of both didn't feel comfortable managing it. so you know with toxicity so if the person prescribing immune checkpoint numbers doesn't feel comfortable managing the toxicity and the subspecialist such as a pulmonologist managing pneumonitis doesn't feel comfortable Someone has to own it. So um, it really does, you know, go beyond just the scope of oncologists. It's it's a it's a medical problem that everyone has to think about. And it's going to become much more relevant for everybody in the the very near future. Um it's 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 gonna be something that everyone's gonna see in any subspecialty as well as you know, primary care and, and hospitalists. So I think everyone should have some baseline understanding of these types of toxicities and, and always have them on their differential when when these patients are admitted to the hospital or seen in clinic.
0: Definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about all this and, you know, helping to, you know, spread awareness of what clinicians should be on the lookout for. Um this is definitely a really informative session.
1: Thank you so much for having me.